I don't think we talk enough about how money is a tool for and against the movement. That's why it's so important for people just to talk about racism, period. Because racism doesn't stop at the money, it doesn't stop at the fundraising, it doesn't stop at the programs that you put out, it doesn't stop at your volunteer appreciation day, you have to think about it. Welcome to Season 3 of The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm your host, Michelle Shereen Murray. This is a podcast that explores the world of inequity in nonprofits and philanthropy, including where we should step into our power or step out of the way. It's part of my desire and effort to bring zero-cost information, case studies, and inspiration to everyone in nonprofits and philanthropy, aka the third sector. And this pod is especially for anyone who, given all the inequity in our world, wants to do better on this nonprofit journey. Today's guest believes that organizations must look at their finances and human resource practices with a social justice lens, especially if they want to remain relevant and attract supporters and employees in modern day. Administration is honestly not the sexiest part of business, but it is plagued with white supremacy practices, and it's not easy always to spot it because it's so prevalent. Philip Shavira is an award-winning nonprofit leader based in the Bay Area of Northern California, where he's currently the finance director of Point Reyes National Seashore Association, PRINSA, in beautiful West Marin County. Philip has worked across sectors from environmental education work in California to investor relations in New York City to arts and culture around the U.S. He's played a variety of executive leadership roles within nonprofits, and through his work, he's seen a need to help organizations check their business practices against a social justice lens. You know I don't like to mention educational credentials because our education system is itself steeped in class and institutional racism barriers that keep so many people out. But because this is a business conversation, I will mention that Philip holds a master's in business. Philip was on the director's council for the Seattle Center Racial Equity Initiative, a coalition of over 40 nonprofits. He's a member of the Association of Latino Professionals for America. And currently he sits on a DEI committee at his workplace. Philip, thank you so much for joining us today on The Ethical Rainmaker. Hi, thank you for having me. I am calling in from stolen and occupied coastal Miwok people. I believe that Black Lives Matter. I support Black Indigenous POC people. And I am ready to talk. Hello, Michelle. (laughs) I am so glad that we get to have this conversation, both because we know each other personally, which is lovely. And also because in our sector, we really don't get to talk about finance and capitalism. And you uh, coming with this background in DEI, coming from these different sectors and working in finance currently, I guess my first question to you is, what has studying and grappling with the effects of capitalism while working in finance been teaching you? Well, capitalism is just trash. The way that it has evolved over time and how it has disproportionately affected people a lot by race, it infuriates me and it torments me as I, as I studied capitalism. You mentioned the uh, education, and I, I, I like that you put that footnote in there. I want to take that and put that on my business card. Uh-huh. Because centering around dollars, I feel that when um, a human does that, they can exploit others at a cost. There's always a cost to you gaining that dollar. That dollar was received from your family and it was passed on. 
And how did your family ethically receive those dollars? Mm, mm-hmm. How are organizations making high profits off mm-hmm. the backs of black and brown people around this world? Mm-hmm. So then we get over to this nonprofit sector that you and I live in. And I think that this is the opportunity and the place where philanthropists and community and goodwill can kind of mold together and take all that money that's out there in that world and use it in different ways. And I think that what drives me most crazy about the fact that we hide, we hide from our finances, I see it in our family, I see it in organizations, I've had executives tell me, well, I don't really look at the, the spreadsheets, I just, I'm told the numbers. And as somebody who looks at the numbers every day, I'm like, there's so much room for change. Mm-hmm. You chose to pay that vendor, you chose to employ those folks, you make choices with your dollars. So this voting with the dollar concept is something that, I, that uh, I, I've studied, and I, I want to charge organizations to, to look inside and, uh, and, and see what, what are you doing with that money? Who are you mm-hmm. supporting? Mm-hmm. So these are all really great questions that you're asking, and I'm just wondering if you can tell a little bit more about you know, what your experiences have been like. What are you doing currently? You know, how can we, I think so many of us that work in nonprofits and especially nonprofits feel very uncomfortable with money, right? We have a lot of folks who maybe work in programs or maybe the the leadership, the executive director might feel uncomfortable with money. And that and that work of figuring out, quote, figuring out money often will land on the fundraiser and the finance mm-hmm. person, right? So the fundraiser has to grapple with other people's emotional narratives about money, about asking for money. They grapple with where to accept money from or not. Um, Often because these conversations aren't happening clearly within an organization, right? The fundraiser is often the one who becomes then responsible for what money is sought after and what money isn't. And therefore, because there's, there can be so much lack of conversation around this topic or other, you know, other folks discomfort with it, those conversations don't often happen. And so when things go down, it's often the, you know, development director or the fundraiser who is under pressure. In that same way, we have finance people who make a whole host of decisions on behalf of a nonprofit, again, because so many of us have emotional issues around money. We'd like to stick our Absolutely. heads in the sand, right? Like an ostrich. Um, we'd like to ignore or deny or just are just generally uncomfortable with managing the money. And finance people get to make a lot of decisions about the organization, how it's spending its resources, what it's doing. And again, not with a whole lot of conversation on behalf of the whole organization or with the whole organization to make choices on behalf of the organization's values. Because a lot of times these conversations just aren't happening. And I think that's why it's so important for people just to talk about racism, period. Mm. Because racism doesn't stop at the money. It doesn't stop at the fundraising. It doesn't stop at the programs that you put out. It doesn't stop at your volunteer appreciation day. You have to think about it. So I, I charge organizations to openly talk about racism. It's the number one thing I think people can do in mm. an organization mm. to help move the conversation forward. You got to sit in that discomfort. Oh, I have been in some tough conversations from executives to non-executives. But what I think is powerful in those moments is that people can see that we are complex individuals. 
Renee Brown talks about that shame that we can feel. And I think there's a lot of shame around racism. There's a shame around saying the words white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we have to move through that. We have to deal with what we are, have been traumatized by it. See a therapist. Talk with our colleagues. Have open conversations with our board members. Have public conversations as well. Mm-hmm. So talking about that racism, I think, then allows, say, this finance director who does have a great deal of say in um, how money is moved, or at least being able to see and connecting all the dots. As a finance director, I don't often make the very ground decisions about uh, where the money is going, but I see how the bills are paid. Mm -hmm. And I can go to that department or whoever that project management leader is. And just have just open conversations because I've started talking about racism. So I can start talking about, well, I, I recognize that the uh, general group who normally buys this ticket for this program happens to be cisgendered, heterosexual white men. And because we've done our data and we've collected our metrics, we see that that happens. And then just very openly, there can be discussions about, well, so I see this is where we are right now. Where do you think we might want to go? This collective thought is what I, I love seeing within organizations. Mm. And it all stems from being open to talking about it. Ways that you can talk about it, hiring consultants. I know you do that. I think Michelle, hire her and her firm. <laughs> Learn things on your own. Listen to podcasts mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. We've got Voulet's work that you can read online every mm -hmm. Monday. Mm -hmm. That's right. I have a list of things. Uh, that, that organizations can start doing. Um, and, then, and then I'll go back to finances because <laughs> that, that's a meaty topic. I don't mm -hmm. think we talk enough about how money is a tool for and against the movement. Ooh, say more. Money has been utilized to foster wealth for specific humans. How that has been done over centuries and I'll speak from the viewpoint of my family. Mm, I am please. born in the Southwest in the United States in what is now Arizona and New Mexico. My indigenous roots have been in that area and Northern Mexico for quite some time. I also identify as uh, Latinx. I identify as queer. I identify as male and I prefer the pronouns he, him. So all that's living in me down in the Southwest, and I see that my family has suffered greatly because of settlements that have happened. Mm. Loss of land, loss of language, mm -hmm. loss of resources. Generations, generations has happened. Poor folks worked on mines, worked as cowboys, worked in the railroad, worked for the US Army, trying to make this American dream happen along the way, forgetting who we are because Settlers were told to make their way over. White colonizers were told to make their way over. Spanish colonizers were told to make their way over and occupy the land mm. for their betterment. Right. And we see this disproportionately affecting folks across many under-resourced communities. So I want to talk now about this making money uh, and, and where that leads to. Please do. Because, Michelle, have you ever heard of this term called fiscal conservatism? 
Yes, I have. I don't like it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure who it helps. Right. I feel like this concept of, you know, oh, yeah, socially socially progressive but fiscally conservative is mm. kind of a, a – there, there's something about propriety in that, right? It's kind of like a – I've, I've heard it used as a statement of you can trust me, you know, or mm-hmm. I'm safe. I always find it interesting when folks self-identify that way. I'd love to hear you talk about it. What do you what do you feel when somebody tells you that they're socially liberal but fiscally conservative? What do you hear? I feel uncomfortable because I wonder what that means to them and where the connection is for that person between our social practices and policies right and law and how we fulfill what we the services we say we're going to provide for example to community mm-hmm. and money like where is the disconnect i think is usually the question that comes up for me mm-hmm. and so i feel deeply uncomfortable because i don't know what i'm going to uncover when someone says that folks who may not know this term it's a political and economic philosophy with advocating for low taxes reduced government spending minimal government debt. Mm. And I think on paper, sure, that sounds sounds great for my financial report that I got to run. But what are my long-term consequences? So I'm going to lower the taxes in this community, but this community still has social services. And when somebody in that community who wants to pay low taxes um, calls the cops on somebody, there's some money being used there. When you lower taxes municipalities, county, government, et cetera, still has bills to pay. As a finance director, I know this. So I go to my managers and I say, well, where can we raise revenue? And many times in municipalities, they go to public agencies and say, how can we raise this? And it turns into police pulling people more over and finding them. That's right. And then when we look at the statistics of how many black and brown people are pulled over by police, we systemically and again disproportionately are putting this fine burden on the backs of black and brown people. Mm, Connect the dots. Love it. I'm not into that. I'm not into that. So this lowering the taxes, while it may benefit a small percentage of folks in any given community... And it's a small percentage. Mm-hmm. It's going to affect the community at whole. So uh, another way just to think about it is just the terms conservative. It's being mindful. There's frugality in there, et cetera. And coming as like this kid who grew up in an impoverished space in the United States, um, I get that. It freaks me out to spend money. I'm very nervous mm. about it. Mm-hmm. And we've also got this, you know, concept, especially, you know, th- those of us, like you said, you're, you self-identify as coming from an impoverished community. Um, many of us who came from immigrant families, like my family was ripped out of Tehran um, during the revolution overnight, you know, unable to return. Um, and so this, there was an emphasis in our household always on saving everything you can, mm-hmm. right, for that rainy day, in this case, for the revolution, and for when you might have to escape or leave. And so, you know, not only is there this narrative of, you know, we, ne- we need to save everything, right? Which is another, another thing I'd love 
for us to talk about. But, you know, save as much as you can and we'd like to save. And, you know, like, look at us. We don't have any debt. We're not carrying any debt. We're not, we're keeping our debt load low as a nation or as a county, right? We're not, we're not spending money on unnecessary programs, right? It's almost like this narrative of, I want to connect it, you know, to some sense of propriety as well. So we see it all over the place, right? And yet, um, one of the things that I get to see in my work, like you said, as in, in my work as a consultant and in my work as a fundraising consultant specifically, I've been able to see organizations who actually have enough, who actually have, especially in this last year, acquired more than they need, more than they'll need for the next couple of years, right? And so that's where this narrative of saving, 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 or make, you know, having a hunger for money to serve our communities that we, where we can't actually even spend that money out fast enough to serve our communities also doesn't serve us truly. Well, I think some of the parts of this study capitalism, try to play in capitalism, going nonprofit, thinking I can solve the issues of capitalism. I don't, I don't see myself exiting this world of capitalism mm-hmm. because I live right. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and I um, I adhere to this pop culture and to buying things, etc. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, what can I do about this? And I do see that I believe it's 60% of wealth in this in this country is passed on generationally. Mm-hmm. It's held within families. Right. So I'm like, okay, let's play this game, whatever. I got to build some generational wealth for my family. Okay, now what is my strategy here? How can I have open conversations about dollars? How can I talk about growing that? I think that's healthy. I think I'd love for people to learn about business. I think it would help support you as an artist. I think it would help support you as a podcaster, understanding how money's coming in and how money's going out. Mm-hmm. Right. I I have open conversations with my nephew about dollars and we talk through reconciling bank accounts, et cetera, because I want that to be a healthy conversation. How old is he? He's eight. (laughs) (laughs) So you have conversations with your eight-year-old nephew about reconciliation. Yep. He even wrote the word down on a piece of paper. It was not legible, but it was adorable. (laughs) I love it. I want to teach him about dollars just to get him to care about it and understand it, that it, that it, it can come and it can go. It's really easy to go. And right. we see it go out the door when somebody gets a DUI and has to pay all these legal fees. We see it when people get pulled over and have to pay fines. We see it when people do, like, there's just so many reasons that I want him to really understand that value of that dollar. And it's going to go quickly. Yo, parking tickets are $46 in Seattle, Right. And if you happen to, let's say, forget to pay your parking ticket, you can accrue hundreds of dollars worth of mm-hmm. debt with mm-hmm. the city, right? And if you didn't have the money to pay that original 46, you're just, you know, you things happen like your license gets gets suspended, et cetera. It's, it's amazing what the state does. And, and, and as, as your podcast has said multiple times, the system is built against people that look like you and I. Mm. And potentially people who are listening to this podcast. So whatever money this little boy is going to have in his life, I want him to be smart with it. I want him to be strategic with it. Mm. And I want him to see how it can grow to support the generations that come after him. Because I think that is a gift that can be given. When there is too much, ooh, that's a nice conversation. What is too much? (laughs) Right? 
You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Muri. Today, we're talking with Philip Shavida, currently the finance director of Point Reyes National Seashore Association in West Marin, California. Philip has been an executive director, a CEO, an entertainment producer. He is an entrepreneur and a co-founder, and he has an MBA from Fordham University. He's here to talk to us today about the choices we can make and the power we have within our organizations when dealing with money and finances. Moving into, you know, this thinking around what does it take to serve our communities? So we can look at several different models. I think, though, something that I've seen, there are at least a few organizations in my life, let's say three or more organizations in my life, where there's actually quite a bit of reserve saved up. And an organization can grow at a certain pace. Not every organization needs to grow, right? So sure, you might want to use some of that money to invest in the organization's growth, but let's say that's not needed. So then what do you do with that money, right? Well, I guess first of all, we can also talk about where is that money being invested, right? That's another important conversation in mm-hmm. terms of investment, divestment. What are we investing in when we're when we're saving money as nonprofits, or even when we're just, you know, keeping payroll? Uh, you know, where where is the bank that we bank at investing? What are they doing with our money in the short term and long term? Uh, what are we doing with our money in the short term and long term? Right? Mm-hmm. I love as a side. I love social justice related banks like a beneficial state bank or amalgamated bank or any of the banks that are really looking at what it looks like to be socially responsible with that money, right? Vote with your dollars. I agree with that. Yes. Right, right. So let's say, you know, you're looking at that. Um, you're looking at where you're investing your money. Let's say you have enough, your organization doesn't need massive investments in its growth, right? You're just holding steady, which many organizations are. And and for many, that's the goal, right? There are some percentage, probably a small percentage, but some percentage of organizations that have significant reserves. So how many months of reserves is enough? I think we say six, typically, for the average family, right? Or for the average organization, one year is phenomenal and fairly unheard of. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm seeing organizations that have more than that now. And I wonder about, you know, this question of, what do we do with, quote, excess? How do we actually serve our communities? Because it's not serving anyone to sit there in a bank, right? No, be transparent about it. Put it into mm. your annual report. So we're kind of talking about larger organizations that may even be foundations, or it sounds like we're talking about that. They can be. I've, I've seen small organizations do it, too. Over a year's worth. I, that's impressive <laughs> to, yeah. to get to that point right. because you've created relationships. It's been a lot of work. And what I like seeing with organizations um, when they they are able to pay their bills and they have savings just in case there's something else goes wrong. And in this last year, we have learned that everything we think that could go wrong will go wrong could. more. That's right. That's right. It's possible. We now know everything is possible. So savings, I think, is healthy. That's a lesson I learned from my grandpa, Lorenzo Martinez. He was like, if you have a penny, save half of it. (laughs) Yep. My mom, my mom too. Save three quarters of it. Try to live off of a quarter of a penny, an eighth of a penny. Uh, So I, I understand the need for savings. I love the idea of thinking about where you bank. Can you bank locally? Do you bank at, a, at an institution that built their wealth off Wall Street enslaved people? Mm-hmm. That's a question you can ask yourself. Mm. And don't get scared of asking the question. Don't get scared of sitting in that discomfort. 
that is the healthy part of all this because we can work through it and you can be in somebody's other foot. So I, I again, like people get nervous with finances because you don't want to uncover something that might be bad. It's going to be the same within racism. You might uncover that something bad, but you're going to be able to grow through it and make a stronger next day. Mm. I like when I see organizations like Pride in Seattle where they utilize uh, money that they have in the reserves to invest into companies so that then they become shareholders and get a voice and the say. And it's organizations that have promoted anti-trans bills, that have promo- uh, supported politicians that support that. So I think about unique ways to utilize the dollars that you have. I also support, uh, I think there are people, been people on your podcast and, and other social justice movements who talk about raising foundations giving Mm-hmm. from that traditional 5% of investments or or whatever your foundation endowment is like raising that and over time i i actually i love this idea of spend down organizations i think mm-hmm. that's really healthy um mm-hmm. <laughs> so said one of my favorite shows pose on television uh <laughs> Uh, about the the ballroom in New York City mm-hmm. uh, by Ryan Murphy. I just love that show, and it's ending. It's on its third season. I'm like, why would they do that? And it it's it's perfect. It's where it needs to be. It needed to mm-hmm. support the queer community in this way and show up and be fabulous. Billy Porter. Um, I feel that that can happen within the uh, nonprofit world too. Think about what are you what are you here to serve? Have you met your mission? Mm-hmm. You can adjust, you can pivot, and there's an opportunity for you to um, to spend down your dollars, agree that the, you've met your goals, and make room for others. I think that's really, really healthy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'd like to see, though? I, I agree. I love the idea of foundations that sunset, uh, institutions that have mm. a sunset plan, institutions, organizations, including nonprofits, that have some idea of what it would look like to shut it down, right? I mean, we have perennial issues, for example. You know, I I like to use the example of where I spent 10 years, Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. Immigrant rights in this country will will always be an issue, right? Mm -hmm. There will always, we will always have battles in the legal system because all of that's broken. None of it makes sense. It's all based on capitalism. And uh, so we will always need folks who are willing to fight the, systems for legal changes, right? As mm-hmm. well as direct advocacy for individuals, et cetera. So some organizations are just going to exist in perpetuity and we hope they don't, right? We want them to not. I love seeing the vision building for that day when that organization isn't needed anymore. For some of our organizations, it's fully possible. Like you're, you're using this example of this show. I think, um, you know, I've heard of an example of the Chorus Foundation, spending down their money around environmental justice because when is that rainy day it's now you mm-hmm. know when when is that time where our environmental justice movements need it it's now it's right now right now there's a huge crisis right and i have been completely shocked at um the stinginess of many of our foundations that didn't just like open up the floodgates you know of of their wealth to serve our communities at this time um, though there have been a lot, there's been a lot more giving to black and brown communities in this last year than any other year, it's still not much, right? Like compared to what's out there sitting in vaults, it's not much. Compared to what could serve the community, it's not much. I find that disturbing. Uh, and I also find that 
you know, yes, I, I hear you. Saving is good. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it might happen. It's great to be a great steward of that money. I think that when we have so much of it, we need to give it away to other organizations, other community groups in our constellation, um, other organizations that are suffering that serve the same communities, right? So I personally am an advocate that when we have too much, we need to we need to spread it around. We need to spend it out in our own communities. And what that looks like can be different. But yeah, it's a it's been a really interesting thing to be thinking about this last year, I think. Give it away. Give it all away. Give it away. <laughs> all That's the dollars. Right. Yeah. When is that rainy day? It's now. It's now. Right now. I, I think that's so important for folks who have great resources to hear. Mm. Um, so I work at, at Point Reyes National Seashore Association, also known as Prinza. And we are out in West Marin. We are a beautiful seashore. Um, we do have ranches and uh, on the on the land um, it's a unique biosphere mm. it's it never takes a bad picture <laughs> true that it's so gorgeous down there and we have um, someone on our board who's been public about this and uh, she has devoted a hundred thousand dollars every year for over 10 years and an article that she was a part of, she said, I know that my family has enough. And it is, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's, there's a, a need to ensure that there is environmental action happening, that we are educating the next folks, the next stewards of this space, and that we um, have a staff that is supporting the park service to ensure that our pillars as a nonprofit that include diversity, equity, inclusion are a part of the park. We have a newsletter called Park in Place where folks can from, from anywhere in the world learn about um, environmental education, learn about the seashore, learn about its history. I mentioned that we um, have DEI as a pillar and from that we formed a committee a DEI committee that includes board, staff, community members, park service leaders. We've invited law enforcement because there are gun carrying law enforcement officers in the park mm -hmm. and utilize money that very wealthy people have given to us because they trust us as a nonprofit to openly try to make this an inclusive space mm. so you and i michelle can say all day give your money give your money give your money and the people say well where do i go to yeah that's right where, where should i start giving that money well i like that in west marine people give to their backyard to the park it mm -hmm. is a very affluent space so those paychecks right. are, are really nice I don't have a lot of uh, work because I've worked in arts and culture for such a long time. So I haven't mm -hmm. worked with organizations that had excess funds. I worked right. with an organization that had a lot of debt and we had to work out of that. <laughs> yep. That, that's more typical, right? That's more typical. Yeah. But I have been on the receiving end of some large gifts from individuals that have a great amount. And I want to go to them and say, your buddies at the country club, your buddies at church, your buddies in your, your Bible group, your buddies at your Mahjong group. Whomever, who are you talking to about this? Because it's not up to you and me, Michelle, or anybody uh, who's in this, in this movement that is of Black, 
indigenous people of color cultures. It's not up to us to tell them to give their money and give it away. It's up to their brothers and their sisters. It's up to their mothers. It's up to their uncles who are talking about money and talking about giving it away to their eight-year-old nephews. Word. I mean, those are some cultural conversations, right? Some of us come from cultures where if you don't give to your community consistently, the evil eye might be cast upon you. That's one of the superstitions. It was there so. every Sunday at church for us. I bet. I bet it was. I bet it was. You got it to your wallet. You put that dollar into that collections basket mm-hmm. and you were supporting your community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Habits of giving. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Muri. This episode and all three seasons are sponsored by our Patreon supporters, also by communitycentricfundraising.org and by Freedom Conspiracy, a fundraising consulting collective. If you enjoy this podcast, you can inspire us to continue this beautiful series through your financial contribution on Patreon. Join us on any social platform to learn more. I'd like to tell you a bit about how how much money people got generally. Because between 1983 and 2013, white households saw their wealth increase by 14%. And during mm. that exact same time, black households' wealth declined 75%. Wow. And then Hispanic households, from a median perspective, that wealth declined by half. Oh, incredible. And... I mean, indigenous wealth hasn't even been measured since 2000. No way. What do you mean it hasn't been measured? The Federal Reserve's data stopped collecting information on reservations with indigenous houses in the year 2000. So we haven't collected that information to my knowledge. Wow. And so what some of like the scary stuff about that, I mean, that it makes me a little sick. So that's why I'm like, honey, we're going to take this penny and (laughs) we're going (laughs) to save half of it. So... One of the scary things I I think about with this racial wealth inequality, if it remains unresolved, if we keep going in this pace, this trend is going to lead to the median household wealth for Black folks in the year 2053 to be zero. We could potentially Mm. see that. And then in, in 2073, it's projected that Latinx households will be at zero for for median household wealth. This comes from the Institute for Policy Studies that utilize the information from the Federal Reserve. Wow. That's striking. It scares me. And terrifying. Yeah, it scares me too. I mean, people literally, they, they talk about the social gap between racial communities. And I, I think that that is, is, a, is a hoity-toity word for there is hell coming for for families. Yeah. If this continues to grow. If we have these billionaires, we have Uncle Bernie, Bernie Sanders, <laughs> we, we don't deserve this bad. He said 86% of billionaires since the pandemic are now 5.1 trillion dollars richer. While 76 million people lost their jobs. Wow. So this this billionaire gap is going to keep growing. I mean, I studied it. People said, make as much money as you possibly can, you know, pay as little as you can, get as much money as the consumers are willing to pay. And it just was driven into a generation where they think that money 
equates love. Money equates success. Money equates fame. That's one of the biggest lies that I feel has been applied through entertainment. It has been applied through social media. There's documentaries about how social media has affected us. So this belief that that money is going to save the day is a fallacy. Mm-hmm. I think that this, this divide that is going to continue to happen is terrifying, and we have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. What's the answer, Philip? I want to support political, federal, local legislation to tax the uber-rich. I think we need to start there. I support so many efforts from Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in talking about how we move around resources. There, I fully believe there is enough money in this world to heal us. Mm. I believe that when nonprofits solicit for funds, that they put it into DEI efforts so that we get to teach communities about racism that just feeds the beast of capitalism that was supported by white supremacy that just keeps this dark circle. I believe that there is corporate accountability that must be taken seriously. I see how there is this connection between money and conservatism. Mm -hmm. Because as long as we keep holding up these bills and passing these laws that allow corporations to put toxins into our body from, Mm -hmm. from food to the air to our water, there's going to be money made. So it helps out to help these corporations. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lower your taxes. That's, that's, the, that's the mask that's being worn there. Mm-hmm. But it's just money in, money out in someone's pocket. Thank you so much for this whole conversation. As we're wrapping up, if you have some advice for those of us who are working like in and around nonprofits and philanthropy in and around money. I got, I got some. Yeah. What advice would that be? Go ahead. Today, I want you to get on your internets and I want you (laughs) to find a nonprofit that you love, that is in your city, that is in your county, that is in your state, that is supporting black indigenous people of color to be prosperous and work towards liberation. I want you to find that organization that you are into And I want you to please ask them if they need any help. That help could be financially supportive. That help could be volunteer work. That help could be stuffing envelopes. That help could be making a phone call for them. We're talking about being a community and we're talking about sharing resources. Any one of us can do that Mm -hmm. from your home. We know that now because of this pandemic, we can Zoom anything, we can try to meet with folks, etc. There's ways that you can help. I get that 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 like you might be on your bicycle right now or you might be listening to this podcast, taking care of your your kid and bless you for that. And thank you mm-hmm. for listening to these words. We always have an opportunity to show up for our communities. You can ask your significant others, you can ask your kids, you can ask your mom and dad. So how are we all showing up for the community? I think that's really healthy. Mm, got it. I love that. Family conversations back full circle. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you really wanted to talk about or really wanted to say? 
I would like to talk about working in the pandemic and wearing many hats in the nonprofit sector. Um, I can speak from my own personal experience that, yes, I'm the finance director at our organization. Um, I've also taken on a lot of responsibilities around HR as our manager, and that's everything from looking at job descriptions to pay to welcoming folks in the interview process and welcoming them day of. And there is a lot of opportunity for uh, helping your company culture meet expectations of this movement right now. And I want to send so much blessings and love to every individual working in the nonprofit sector right now or who has worked in the nonprofit sector for wearing those multiple hats and who have found their power and courage and confidence to speak up about racism in their work, to talk about inclusivity, to talk about breaking down white supremacy while paying bills, while being in an education program, because you're needed to do so many things at this time. And I know how exhausting this work is from a personal experience. My joy is that somebody who looks like me and talks like me and acts like me gets a voice, gets to be heard in their, in their meetings, gets to be heard in their company, and it may take time to build that. But I think that there is a lot of resilience and excitement from individuals and power. And you might be bogged down, but this work is the long game. Word. Isn't that the truth? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for having this talk with me. This is Philip Chavira on The Ethical Rainmaker. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Have a great day. You too. And that's it for The Ethical Rainmaker. If you're inspired by what you hear, we would love for you to support us by sharing this work, contributing cash, and engaging with us. Don't let your coworkers, friends, and collaborators miss out. Share The Ethical Rainmaker with your community. And this episode, it could be sponsored by you. Support us on Patreon, where we now have a community of 50 individual supporters, including our newest fam, Emily, Robert, Corey, and Aileen. So lovely, y'all. And you can connect with us directly to sponsor the show. Just drop us a line at hello at theethicalraymaker.com. We'd love to hear what this episode inspired in you. DM us on Insta, Facebook, the CCF Slack channel, or our website where you can actually send us a voice message. We'd love to hear your ideas and thoughts for future episodes, your curiosities, your questions, and we may even expand your burning question into our next episode. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced in Seattle by Kazmara Hall and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, with socials by Stacey Wynn Creative. Find extensive show notes and transcripts at theethicalrainmaker.com. Our awesome theme song is I'm Gold by Trick Candles, which you can find on Bandcamp. The Ethical Rainmaker comes to you every two weeks, and you will love what's next.